0: My name is Greg Kodrowski. and this is my podcast, Theology 101. I like to study the Bible, and I don't think the Bible is really that difficult to understand. For the most part, it's really pretty simple, and simple is better. So if you're like me, and you want to know more about the Bible, or if you just want to hear more about the Bible, stick around. And if you want to know more about me or check out my pedigree, Google me, or visit my website, theology101.net. Well, let's talk about anachronisms in the Great Commission. This is going to be the last message that we have in this discipleship series. Um, It's a series that we're talking about our mission. We talked about, you know, what's our purpose in life to glorify God and, and enjoy him forever. And then we took that a step farther and said, well, how do we, what do we need to do in order to do that? And that's our mission, you know, that's the work that we're supposed to do that glorifies God. And that work is the work of being and, and making disciples. Now, that obviously took us through the whole series on discipleship and, you know, this biblical philosophy of discipleship, biblical theology of discipleship, and and I, I hope it was enjoyable, but it dropped us off in what a lot of people call the Great Commission— And so in the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about the Great Commission and how it applies to us. And I think I've been pretty clear about what I believe. Um, And certainly you don't, you should not believe what I believe just because, you know, I'm saying it or I believe it or I say it with, you know, enough emotion and passion that, that you're convinced you ought to go to the Bible and figure out what the Bible says and believe that. Um, the Bible says a virtuous woman who can find, we would all say, amen. And yet the same uh, Bible says all men are liars. So that's where you got to put me. Don't trust me. Trust the Bible. Right? Okay. So this last message, um, that we're going to talk about is another message on the Great Commission. And I'm gonna, gosh, how do I explain it? Um, the Great Commission is such a major part of our lives as Christians, one of the things that bothers me is you know you go into a church and so many churches are all about maintenance they just want to maintain what they have and so few churches today are about mission and you know you go into a church you know like a, a simple church that they're they're all about you know intentional evangelism and finding out new ways to reach people in the community with the gospel message and and then when 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 they have new people come in or even with the well, the old people, well, you know, they want to edify people. They give them Bible and, and and you know an abundance of of Bible with teaching and preaching, expository preaching of the Bible. And we've lost that uh, so much in the in the church that I want to take just a, I want to take a little bit. And I want to talk a little bit more in this series on the Great Commission, but I want to take it from a different aspect. We looked at the last epi- couple episodes, like I said, our last lesson. We looked at the Great Commission, how it applies to us in principle. But we really need to, to understand the Great Commission as a doctrinal context. Because so many people out there are, are, are just applying Scripture to themselves and to the Church, just willy-nilly, grab what you want, and, and away we go. And it, it makes the Bible hard to understand. Now, I called this podcast theology 101 because i don't think theology or knowledge of god and the works of god i don't think i don't think it's difficult i think it's kind of like you know in the university you get those you know 101 classes you know biology 101 it's just the basics okay it's the basics and what we're going to go over today in this episode and the next episode i'm sure it's going to extend more than an hour so i mean it's it's okay you can just hit the pause or hit the stop or hit the delete you know i mean whatever um i think it's important that we understand scripture in context and it's i think it's very important it, we, that we understand the great commission in context because if we don't we're going to find ourselves running back to the old testament and i'm going to show you why running back to the old testament to find out the teaching that we're supposed to teach our disciples. And if we go back to the Old Testament to pull out the teaching that we're going to be teaching our disciples, we are not going to be edifying the believers like God wants us to. We're not going to be making disciples according to God's plan. And so we're going to talk about anachronisms today. We're going to talk about the Great Commission and anachronistic errors. This will be probably a little bit more teachy, a little bit more doctrine um, than the last ones. I don't know how much you know pulpit pounding I'm going to get into on in in this in this episode, but um, I do want to go on record before we get into the deep weeds with everything. I do want to go on record and say, look, I believe the Great Commission applies to us today. I believe the principles. Found in the Great Commission passages at the end of the Gospels and at the beginning of the book of Acts, in their proper context, the principles of the Great Commission form what we call our life's mission today. But what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a doctrinal look at the Great Commission. We're going to look at the Great Commission in its context. And I want to I say this too the Great Commission as it was originally given, is not for the Church. If you don't understand um, what we're going to be going over in this lesson, if some of this stuff is is just kind of, you think, well, what, what is this guy saying? Um, I would just encourage you, just listen to it once or twice. Um, take some notes. You can get on my my website, Theology101, or bump over to my my Bible study site. I think I've got some notes over there Um, from a discipleship series that I taught at at a church I started, Harvest Baptist Church. And just think about these things. As you're reading the Scripture, I just want you to think about it, because what we're doing is just allowing the Bible to speak for itself. If the Bible is God's Word, then God gave us His Word in plain enough language that we could understand it, because He wants us to understand it so that we can obey Him. It's not like God wrote some uh, some mystical book that we have to decipher in order to figure out what the plan of God is for our lives. No, it's it's the Word of God. It's the self-declaration of God. He wrote it in language. He gave us language, so God knows how to use language. He knows how we understand language, and so we just need to let the Bible speak for itself. The problem, I tell you what, the problem that we're going to run into um, with anything that I say in this episode and the next one, with um, with the errors that are committed with uh, with the Great Commission, what the problem is going to be is the stuff that we have learned before. That's going to get in the way of what the Bible says. And so it's one of those things where you have to learn how to unlearn what you've learned wrong before you can start learning what the Bible says and what God wants you to learn. And so if you find yourself... You know, going up against this thing, you're saying, What what is this guy saying? You know, what is this guy saying? This doesn't make any sense. Evaluate and ask yourself, hey, am, am what am I trying to evaluate what he's saying based on what I've learned before? Rather than just approaching the Bible, approaching scripture, and and asking yourself, hey, what does the Bible say? Okay, so that's what I'm gonna try to do throughout this episode and the next one is just say, look, what does the Bible say? And if we can come to the point where we observe what the Bible says in its proper context, then we can put the Great Commission in its proper context, and we won't be making disciples that don't understand Scripture. They just don't. So I have so many many examples in my mind. I had a conversation. Now, we, we don't even have time to go there. Let's start, let's start by talking about two principal errors in Bible interpretation. When we come up to, to to our Bible and we start reading the Bible or we start studying the Bible, that's called observation. In the methodical Bible study, okay, you have observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. And so observation is just reading the Bible, what does it say? But we get to this point where we're like, well, what does it mean for me? How do I apply this? And that's what we're doing with the Great Commission— I say we apply the Great Commission in principle. We do not apply the Great Commission directly. I am saying that in context, the Great Commission is directly for Israel in a very specific context within the, pro, the kingdom program that God gave Israel. Now We'll see all that here in just a minute. But for us, we apply the principles. It's like going over to the Old Testament. And we read something in the Old Testament, and we say, you know, there's a principle there that I can apply to my life. And that's what we do with the Great Commission. The problem comes in, and there's two of them, problem comes in when we start saying the Great Commission is directly for us. That's a problem, and I'll show you why. Two principal errors, okay? Commonly committed when we get to that point in our Bible study where we start asking ourselves, what does this mean for me? so I can apply it, interpretation. The first one is allegory. Now, I think there's a lot more I want to say about allegory, but I'm going to say it in a different context. This is our last message in this series. The next series we're going to start is going to be a little bit longer. It's going to be a little bit more involved, but we're going to have an opportunity to branch out into a a couple of different things. And one of the things we're going to talk about is this allegorical uh, method of interpretation, where it came from, how it started, and and how it's developed, and where do we see it today? Because it's all around us. The allegory, this is the error of not taking literally what was written literally. Now, like I said, the vast majority of the Bible is just—it's a history book. God took history— And he used history and events in history and people in history to teach his doctrine. So all of the doctrine of the Bible, the vast majority of the doctrine of the Bible, comes couched in history. It's a history book. So read it like a history book. It's literal. It's normal, we should say. Um, The problem comes in when when people start looking for some esoteric, spiritual, mystical meaning behind the words. And it's not to say there are not allegories in the Bible. You know there are. The uh, example I have is Galatians 4.24. Paul says, um, he's talking about the, the the law and grace. He's talking about Old Testament New Testament, and he's using a metaphor. He's using a, an allegory. And he says in Galatians 4.22 that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondmaid, the other by the free woman. He who was of the bondwoman was uh, born after the flesh. He was of the free woman was a promise, which things are an allegory. So there's allegory in the Bible. We're not saying that allegory is wrong. And a lot of times um, we'll... Use allegory in what we call pictures and types and and that too might require some you know some additional explanation uh, for some. But when we look at pictures and types, all we're doing is taking something in the Bible and seeing it, seeing it as a reflection of something else. You know, you look at the uh, Old Testament Levitical sacrifices, and those Levitical sacrifices are pictures and types of Jesus Christ. It's like the Passover. The Passover lamb, it's like John the Baptist. He says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So the Passover is a type of Christ, it's a picture and a type. The problem is not so much with what is written as allegory. The problem that comes in in this uh, interpretation is when somebody takes what is written literally, something that's written normally, historically, doctrinally, and then they want to interpret it as an allegory. For example, one of my favorite examples is I read a sermon, and I'm not going to tell you who it's by, it's by a very famous preacher. If I said his name, you'd know who he is. Um, he said he was preaching a message on, on using gospel tracts, and he went over to Revelation, what is it, 22-2, and the tree of life out in eternity. And uh, the Bible says that on the tree of life were the, the, the leaves, and the leaves were for the healing of the nations— And this very famous preacher said, those leaves are gospel tracts. And we need to go to the tree of life, Jesus Christ, and grab these gospel tracts and then pass them out for the for the 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 healing of the nations, right? And you're like, well, I mean, yeah, we need to pass out tracts. I mean, I get it, that's a good, but that's not what the Bible says. Okay, that's that's complete allegory. It's just crazy. That's a real tree with real leaves, and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. I mean, there's there's a whole doctrinal teaching behind all of that. They're not gospel tracts, okay? That's an allegory. That is just taking the Bible and and seeking some mystical, esoteric, spiritual teaching behind the words. That's wrong. It's like what people do with the days of creation. You know, if you're a An evolutionist, you can't go to Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, and say, you know, the seven days are seven 24-hour periods. So those seven days become seven ages, and you allegorically interpret those seven days as seven ages so that you can have your millions and billions of years through which evolution made creation, right? Uh, The problem with that is that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it was a day, seven days days. And it even goes on to explain the evening and the morning was the first day. And so I don't know about you, but from one evening to the next evening, the evening to the morning, for me, that's a day, okay? So the Bible says normally, literally, historically, doctrinally, day. And the allegory says, eh, no, that's an age. That means millions and billions of years. And a lot of people do that too with uh Adam and Eve. They say Adam and Eve weren't real people; um, they're figurative representations of the first humans that evolved. They were the first ones that came out of the apes, or I don't know, whatever. I even, I even uh, had spent some time with a rabbi here a couple of years ago uh, at my job, and uh, we got to talking some some doctrine, and he didn't even believe in the Exodus. Uh, he said what was written in the book of Exodus about Israel and Egypt and coming out and crossing the Red Sea, that didn't happen. That was just an allegory uh, to teach us some spiritual principles. So, yeah, allegories. A lot we could talk about with allegories. We're not gonna, okay? We're gonna leave that for for later. What we want to talk about here is anachronisms. And so what do I mean by anachronisms? What are we going to be looking at with anachronisms? <clears throat> this is This is the error that occurs when people or events are placed incorrectly in chronological history okay anna and chronos that's that's the word anachronism anna and chronos those are two words from from the greek anna is a prefix which means against okay against and chronos of course is like chronology it means time so against time together you mash those together anachronistic uh an anachronistic error is an error made against time so it's it's an improper placement of people or events in, a, in, a, in chronological history. For example, um, Sabbath keeping. There's a whole denomination today, Seventh-day Adventists, that want to keep the Sabbath. Well, that's an anachronism because the Sabbath was given in the past, and we should not ap- uh, apply it in the present. Um, It was given in the past to Israel under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, um, within the Mosaic Law. We're not under the Old Covenant, we're not under the Old Testament, and we're not under the Mosaic Law. So there's no reason for anyone today to be keeping the Sabbath. That's an anachronism. The same thing happens with the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe they are the 144,000 of the Tribulation. Well, the 144,000 of the Tribulation is something yet future. So they've taken something yet future and applied it to today. Okay? So those are some examples that are very, very easy to see. And we're going to see that what happens that make people go kind of crazy with the Great Commission is, no, there's two things. Um, number one, the placement of the Great Commission is, is difficult for people to grasp. Um, sometimes it's because of just ignorance, just they haven't been taught. They haven't read the Bible enough. They're not familiar enough with the content of the Bible to kind of put the pieces together. But a lot of times what happens is, you know, you read through your Bible, you get done with Malachi in the Old Testament, um, Malachi, and and you hit this page. I'm looking at mine in my Scofield Bible, and uh, it's just one blank page, and it says the New Testament. And so you're like, hey, I'm in the New Testament, so everything after that page in my Bible, it gets supplied to me. And so, again, it's probably just ignorance and not ignorance in a in a wrong way. It's just, who's who's out there teaching Bible? You know, you, you th- talk about your favorite preachers, you know, your pastor, uh, where you go to church, and the sermons that you get weekly— how many sermons do you get? Do you get one, two, or three? You know, you do three to thrive Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday, or is it just once on Sunday and maybe every now and then a Wednesday or a midweek something? And, and even when you go, do you get topical messages? I mean, if you're getting topical messages, you're missing out because you're not getting taught, you know, Bible um, expository books and stuff like that. So you're, you're missing out on how the pieces fit together. And, and then usually our midweek Bible study is where, you know, you get all the systematic teaching of the Bible, so you really see how things fit together. And so I think a lot of people are missing out on a lot of good Bible teaching today, just because um, you know people are more interested in giving little TED Talk sermons and 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 doing happy things, you know, like playing board games and stuff like that during the midweek, rather than actually teaching the Bible. And so we've lost a lot of the 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 Bible knowledge that that people had several generations ago, and people are just ignorant. They just don't have the the tools and the the the. Um, the knowledge to to put the pieces together. So, we're going to try and do a little bit of that here within these two episodes. And and obviously, we're not going to solve the world's problems in two podcasts. Um, but we can at least we can touch on the Great Commission, and we can say, you know what? Hey, let's let's look at the Great Commission. It has a very very specific um, context, and I want to want to mention this that one of the didactic tools, you know, the teaching tools. If I want to use that word, didactic teaching. One of the teaching tools that'll help you avoid anachronistic errors okay these these timeline errors is is a timeline think of a timeline a piece of paper you know you put a landscape and you draw a line left to right and on the left side is genesis on the right side is is revelation and everything in between falls in chronological order well if you think about a timeline and you put things on a timeline you start you know putting dates and you start putting events and you start putting people you know christ and his first coming and his death and his his burial, his resurrection, his 40 days with the apostles, his ascension, and then the, they go off and, and start preaching the gospel. That's going to help you avoid anachronistic errors, okay? Because, look, the like the Great Commission, like we're going to look at, has a very specific chronological historical context, okay? It happened after the resurrection of Jesus Christ— and it happened before the ascension of Jesus Christ. So Christ spent 40 days uh, on the earth uh, with his disciples after he rose and before he ascended in, in Acts chapter one. And during that time is when he gave them the Great Commission. Okay, this, this this passage that we just love to grasp as our own. And we're gonna find out that, man, we really got to take some care to apply it right. So I want you to think linearly linearly because that's how God gave us the Bible the Bible like I said is basically doctrine couched in history and so the Bible is relatively chronological if you read it in order Genesis to uh, Revelation you're going to be reading biblical history from the beginning uh, the origins until the end often to eternity and so you you'll get an idea of of the chronology of biblical history. And so think linearly. And it's even more important to do so when we start talking about these events, very specific events. Well, how are they placed? What came first? What happened? Because God gave his Bible as a progressive revelation. Okay. God did not give the Bible all in one shot. He didn't just sit down and take a, you know, a couple of weeks and, and write the Bible. The Bible was written over about two thousand years. It was written through about forty-five uh, different human authors, and so we have sixty-six books. and And, and it, they're, they were given in chunks uh, through history. You know, we have Job, which came first. That's just a book that's kind of hanging out there by itself. And then God raised up Moses, and Moses gave us the Pentateuch, which is a, a unified whole. Um, basically, the the whole Pentateuch is one written and literary work that that that's it's just the foundation of the bible but yeah within within the pentateuch we have you know, Genesis to the deuteronomy five different books and and each has its own um its teaching within that that context of the pentateuch and then after a while then we get the, you know the 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 books of history with Joshua judges and Ruth and Samuel so th- th- it wasn't all given at the same time you know especially when you look at old testament and new testament <clears throat> you look at uh, when um, you know, the Gospels were written, and when uh, Paul wrote his, his Gospels, when did James John Peter write? So we don't have everything at one time. Sometimes that causes us anachronistic problems. Why? Because we got it all. You you have a Bible, 66 books, just like mine. I'm looking at my King James Bible. Like I said, it's a Schofield Bible and uh the old Schofield, I like it. Um, and it's 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 great, but it's it's the full revelation of God. Well, Paul didn't have this. Peter didn't have this. Um, Samuel, uh, Moses, they they didn't have this. And so when we go and look at the Great Commission, we need to understand where are we at in history, where are we at in this chronological context, where are we at in the progressive revelation of God, what revelation has been given, what revelation has not been given, so we don't read back into the Great Commission things that aren't there, just simply aren't there. And so as we go through this, I want to make this point, too, because this is kind of my little um, this commercial break for what's coming next— uh, as we look at this, I just want to mention that what we do when we study the Bible, we read the Bible, we study the Bible in our minds or in notebooks or, or however we put stuff together, it, it's, we, we build a system of theology, okay? What we do is we, we start putting things together as we learn about God, as we learn about Bible and what God's doing in our lives and in the world, the plan of God, you know, God's works. We, we put the system and how we order it and we structure it in our mind, every other system of theology except dispensationalism must commit these two errors to a greater or lesser extent, either it's allegory or it's anachronism, okay? Why? Because uh, if that system of theology would simply take the Bible literally normally as it's written, it would eventually morph into dispensationalism, because dispensationalism is the only theological system that avoids these two errors, because dispensationalism is the only theological system that is consistently based on a normal interpretation of Scripture. Just taking what was written literally, normally, okay, if it's written literal, take it literally. If it's written as allegory, take it as allegory. Just normal language, okay? And so when I say that, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you even where dispensationalists go crazy with this this idea of like the Great Commission is for us or salvation was the same in every age. Well, it's not. When when we look at the Great Commission and we say you know what that Great Commission was given in a very specific historical and doctrinal context and it does not apply to the church. Um, there's a lot of dispensationalists that go absolutely crazy. They lose their minds and they have to apply some sort of allegory to make the scripture fit their system of theology. When I say, man, you know, why don't we just let the Bible say what it says? You know, if we do that and we're wrong, I really don't think there's going to be a problem with that at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, I mean, we took the Bible at what it said, and maybe we we got it wrong. Um, maybe, maybe we did, but at least we didn't twist the Scripture to make it mash into our little system of theology just because we didn't like what it said. Okay, so we're going to focus not on allegory, like I said. We're going to focus on common anachronistic errors within the context of the Great Commission. And so the big challenge is going to be... Um, just allowing the Bible to speak for itself, okay? So I'll probably be asking this question a lot in this episode and in the next one. What does the Bible say? What just, what does it say? I, I'm not going to talk about what it means, what you think it means, what, you know, I, uh, what does it say? What does it say? Because I'm telling you, it was written in simple English. We got a good translation. It is very good English, it's very simple English uh, there's not a lot of difficult passages and I'm going to tell you the Great Commission is not one of those difficult passages. passages difficult to understand and we're going to be using the Great Commission um, mostly Matthew 28 18 to 20. Um, that's probably the you know the most famous passage of the Great Commission passages and we're going to take that and just ask ourselves in the chronological progressive revelation of God, what does this passage say? Okay, so in the cumulative context, because, like, I mean, cumulative context, think about it. <clears throat> if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you're not going to understand what's going on in Genesis chapter 2 unless you know what's going on in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2 says day 7, and you're going to start in Genesis chapter 2 and say, why did he start on day 7? Why didn't he start on day 1? So cumulative context says to understand chapter 2 of Genesis, you have to understand chapter 1. And then to understand chapter 3, you have to have the cumulative context of chapters 1 and 2. So if you get that idea, all you have to do is extrapolate that out all the way up to the Great Commission you are not going to understand the Great Commission until you understand the cumulative context of what happened before, because what happened before directly impacts the context and the content of the Great Commission. And there's a whole lot that went on before from Genesis up to Matthew 28. So we need to take into account the cumulative context. And you say, oh, but that's too hard. I can't do that. You know, and and I'll tell you, Number one, that's why you need to be reading the Bible every day. You need to be always—I mean, just reading it. take I mean, read the Bible once a year, four pages a day. It's not that difficult. Um, take about 15 minutes, and and look for a church that has a pastor that teaches expositorily, that teaches systematically, somebody that's going to give you good doctrine, so that this cumulative context becomes second nature. Okay? It's not that difficult. It's not. But if we're not— Bathing ourselves in Bible content, good Bible preaching, and expository preaching, systematic teaching of Scripture, we're not going to get it. Okay, we're not going to get it. And so the challenge is: if the Bible, if what the Bible says, goes against what we believe or what we have been taught, what would be the right response? Should we correct ourselves in order to align ourselves with the Scripture? Or should we try to align the scripture with what we have always believed? I think you know the question. I think you know the answer to the question because if we go to this route of trying to align the scripture with what we've always believed, we're either going to do it by allegory or anachronism. So let's correct ourselves to align ourselves with what the scripture says and allow the scripture to lead us into a better system of theology. So here's our focus question for the study. Is the Great Commission for us today, is the Great Commission in its proper context, is it specifically and doctrinally and directly for Christians living in the church age today? All right? Now, I, I, like I said, last couple of podcasts, last couple of episodes, we looked at the general principles of the Great Commission and how they apply to us, and I have no problem in saying, in context, uh, the principles found in the Great Commission are obviously applicable to us. And in that sense, yes, the Great Commission is. However, what I want to focus on now is very specifically asking ourselves that in the doctrinal, historical, cumulative context is the Great Commission for the Church today. All right? So we're going to use, like I said, Matthew 28, so I'm going to jump back there. we got a bunch of, bunch of passages to read. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of passages, a lot of Scripture. I might jump over some of those. Um, these two episodes are probably going to be a little bit longer, as is, and I might just uh, mention some passages. Uh, I like to read them so that you don't think I'm trying to Mess with you, but if we jump around and I just mentioned some passages that we've read before, uh, that's why we got a lot to look at. Some of the passages, yeah, they're good. Some of the passages I think are good. I think are are well enough known that you can probably get by just 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 with reference. Okay, so <clears throat> the chronological context of the Great Commission. Let's um let's let's talk about that and let's ask ourselves a couple of a couple of questions. The Church Age. <clears throat> or let's uh, rather than that, let's, let's call it the church, the body of Christ. You know, this this organism that, that we're part of, you know, we're members of the body of Christ, Christ in us, us in Christ, you know, we're, we're his members, he's, he's the head, we're the body. Um, that's the church. Uh, during the church age, members are being added to the body of Christ. So when did the church begin? When did the church start? Okay, that's one question. The next question is when was the church revealed? Okay. And then when will the church end? Or rather, when will the church age end? When will members stop being added to the body of Christ? All right. So so three questions. The first one, when did the body of Christ start? When did was when did it become alive? You know, you could always say, well. The the body of Christ was conceived in the Gospels, you know, where where we see the you know the the called out group of the twelve disciples eventually. I know, but when we talk about the body of Christ, when was the first member of the body or member of the body of Christ added to the body of Christ? When was the body of Christ born? When did it become alive? When were when were we connected? And I think you'll find the answer, and again, I'm just going to reference it. Um, You can look it up later. It's it's very well known. Acts chapter 2. Okay, the church, the body of Christ, it started with the coming of the Holy Spirit of God to dwell in believers. The believers were born again by the Spirit. They became alive. That's when the church, the body of Christ, started. Okay? So... The body of Christ starts in Acts chapter 2. That causes people a lot of problems. Because simply because it started in Acts chapter 2 doesn't mean anybody knew about it in Acts chapter 2. So that leads us to our next question. Uh, When did God reveal the body of Christ? When did God reveal the church? When was this church age? revealed when did god let us know what was going on um and this I'm going to read <clears throat> uh probably only read it once because it's lengthy but it's very important this passage um along with galatians chapter 1 we're going to go over there we're going to read that one too because these two passages are essential okay let me do galatians first let's let's do that galatians 111 to 17 galatians 111 to 17 get these two passages down okay uh, if if you want to understand the, this this cumulative context, this chronological context, if you want to understand it, you have to get down what these what these passages say And so follow along Galatians 1. 11 Galatians 111 Paul is explaining to the Galatians he says, but I certify you brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. Okay, so now, context, Paul's talking about the gospel he preached. All right? So there are those. We want to get off on that track. Let's just continue reading. Verse 12. For I neither received it, the gospel of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, look, the gospel I preached to you, was not something I learned from any man, okay? I didn't get it from the Twelve. I didn't get it from Ananias. I didn't get it from Peter. I didn't I didn't get it from a man. I got it directly from Jesus Christ by Revelation. Verse 13, "...for ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in, in the Jews' religion above many my equals." In mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, to reveal His Son in me. Now, now, context. Where did that happen? Okay, he says, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace. When was Paul called by the grace of God? When did Paul get saved? When was Paul's conversion experience? Acts chapter 9. Paul got saved. I mean, you want to call it that? I'm trying to think of different ways to say it. I mean, got saved, he converted, he was born again, he became a Christian uh, in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, okay? So he says, Acts chapter 9, to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, the Gentiles, immediately. Now, what did the verse say? Immediately. I conferred not with flesh and blood. So, Paul, he says, as soon as God revealed his son in me, as soon as he called me by his grace, as soon as Paul got saved, of course, he was blinded, spent three days in fasting, got, uh, you know, they had that, that conversation with Ananias. He was baptized, lost the, you know, he got his sight back, and he says, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. "...neither went I up to Jerusalem, to them which were apostles before me." So he did not go talk to the twelve. He says, "...immediately I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus." So he goes out into the desert of Arabia, which is where Mount Sinai is, Mount Horeb, and there he says that he got this gospel that he received directly by revelation from Jesus Christ. Okay? So this is going to help us, okay, to establish some context. The gospel Paul preached had not been revealed to anyone before Paul. Paul did not receive it from any man. There was no man preaching the gospel that Paul was preached that that Paul began preaching until Paul received that from Jesus Christ by direct revelation in the desert of Arabia immediately after he converted to Jesus Christ. That's Galatians 1, 11 and 12. There's a lot there. That's why I say you really need to get this passage down and then compare it with Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. I'm going I'm going to I think I'm I might read the whole thing, but verses 1 to 7 is 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 good. Verses 1 to 9 is is even better. Paul says in Ephesians 3.1, For this cause I, Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, so we know he's talking to Gentiles, not Jews, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Okay, So that revelation, you need to tie in, in your mind, you need to tie it back into the revelation he got back in Galatians 1 immediately after he was saved. The revelation. says, how that by revelation he, Jesus Christ, made known unto me the mystery. He says, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which, mystery, verse 5, in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, and is now revealed, now, unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then he defines the mystery that was hidden but made known through revelation. He says in verse 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, his gospel. And so this idea that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body with Jews, is new revelation that God gave to Paul. He says, Whereof, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Verse 8. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, this mystery of the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, members alike in one body, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things in Jesus Christ. So this, this idea of the church, the body of Christ, the church age, was something that was hidden from the beginning of the world until God revealed it to Paul in Acts chapter 9. And then after that, well, it's out there. Okay? So when we ask ourselves... When did the body of Christ start? I think we can pretty much say it started in Acts chapter 2, with the coming of the Holy Spirit to make believers born again. Paul always he, he talked about people who were in Christ before him. So there were people in Christ before Paul. Okay, So when did the body start? Well, it started in Acts chapter 2 when it became a living thing, when it was born again. But then we ask ourselves when was it revealed? It was not revealed until Paul. And that means at least Acts chapter 9 and Paul's conversion. That's Galatians 1, that's Ephesians 3. Like I said, those two passages are very very important. Okay? So the next question we ask is okay, when is it when does the church end? When when do Members stop getting added to the body of Christ. And, and that, of course, we're talking about the rapture of the church at the end of the church age. Um, the church age will end just as suddenly as it began. It is an intercalary, intercalar, intercalend. It, it's parenthetical, okay? It's parenthetical. And try and use big words and get myself all messed up. But uh, it's, it's something that God didn't reveal before, but He kind of stuck in history because of how the events unfolded. And so he didn't reveal it. Obviously, God knew it was going to happen. He's omniscient. And so we have this parenthetical church age. And that means that you could take out the church age and the, the timeline would make sense. If you could jump from right before the church age to right after the church age, God's prophetic kingdom program would look seamless. Okay, but we have this, this, um, this parenthetical church age, and it's going to end just as suddenly as it began. It began with this sudden coming of the Holy Spirit to dwell in believers, in Acts chapter two, with the Holy Spirit coming down, and it's going to end with this sudden removal of all believers when the Holy Spirit is going up in the rapture, uh, with the rapture of the saints, the rapture, and the resurrection. Two passages: First Thessalonians four thirteen and eight to, th- to eighteen, and then of course First First Corinthians fifteen fifty one to fifty eight. 1 Thessalonians talks about the rapture, the the catching away, and 1 Corinthians 15 obviously talks about, um, within the context of the catching away, the rapture, um, it talks about the resurrection of our bodies, how we'll be transformed into something glorious and, and eternal, immortal. And so that gives us a little bit of chronological, cumulative context for the Great Commission, because remember... At the church, the body of Christ was not revealed until Acts chapter 9. And and don't let this mess you up, okay? Because some people get hung up on the fact that the body of Christ existed from Acts chapter 2 until Acts chapter 9, but it wasn't revealed until Acts chapter 9. So the, the question is, can something that exists not be revealed? And I think you'll agree with me that the answer is, well, yeah, I mean, obviously. I mean, how many things have been discovered? You know, you think about, let's just take the Americas. You know, for many Europeans until in 1492 when, when what's-his-name, sailed the ocean blue, uh, nobody knew about the Americas. So does that mean the Americas didn't exist? I mean, that's why they called, I mean, they called the Native Americans, they call them Indians. They thought they went all the way around the world and hit India. They were like, hey, here we are. Welcome to India. And these are the Indians. And says we call them Indians. Well, no, they're Americans. They're the original Americans. They're the Native Americans. And so uh, they didn't know that the Americas existed, but the Americas existed. And when When they came over in 1492, well, they discovered that, hey, here it is, and now we have knowledge of them. And so it's the same concept. God did not reveal the existence of the body of Christ until Paul, Acts chapter 9. And so the body of Christ existed from Acts chapter 2 all the way up to Acts chapter 9, and listen, listen, here's the key. Nobody knew a thing about it. They didn't. They didn't know about the church age. They didn't know about the body of Christ. They didn't know about this church with Christ the head and we the members and Jews and Gentiles alike. Nobody knew a thing about the church and the church age, the body of Christ, until God revealed it to Paul. So just because something exists doesn't mean it's revealed. And so if we take what was revealed later and shove it back in to a passage that was earlier, we end up creating some anachronism, an anachronistic error. And so we need to be very careful not to read the church, the body of Christ, back into the Great Commission. That is an anachronistic error. It is applying something from our present to something that happened in our historical past. When Jesus Christ gave the great, great Commission to his apostles, the revelation of the church, the body of Christ, was still yet future. Nobody except Jesus himself, nobody in Matthew 28 knew anything about the church, the body of Christ, or the church age. That's what the Bible says. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 3. That's what Paul says in Galatians 1. The the gospel Paul preached was new revelation. The mystery of the body of Christ was new revelation with Paul. So up till Acts chapter 9, you have a different gospel and no knowledge whatsoever of what we know today as the church, the body of Christ in the church age. So <clears throat> let's take some, some time and talk about some specifics in the context of the Great Commission, some specifics. Matthew twenty eight sixteen. Matthew 28, 16, getting a little bit, or a few more verses before the the Great Commission, so we get it in context. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore—he's talking to the eleven— Go ye, therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Okay, so the Great Commission now is given after the resurrection and before the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was given, as we saw in this passage, to the eleven disciples who are also called apostles I and mean, we could call it 12 if you want to include Matthias so I'm not going to balk at that but in the in the in the in the passage we got 11 okay we got the 11 disciples now there's two commands two imperatives to this to this great commission right go and teach go and teach. So they have to go in order to fulfill the commission. We, we've seen that time and time again. The Lord wants his disciples uh, to, to be from all nations. And so uh, you got to go out. Go to all nations and then and then preach. So the Lord gave this commission to Jews. The Jews are very nationalistic. So we see the reason for this, this command uh, because of the covenants given to them, the covenants of promise, much of them concerning the land grant and and how the Gentiles were going to be subservient to Israel. It wasn't normal or natural for a Jew to go out among other nations to, to Gentiles. Um in some cases it was even not permitted for them to go out and to be among the Gentiles. So the Lord makes it very clear, and he commands them, go. Okay, go. It's an imperative. It's a command. And then he says, go and teach. So go ye therefore and teach. So there's your other imperative, your second imperative. And after they go, once they get to where they're going, they're supposed to teach. Now that's how a disciple is made. If you think about it, um, how is a new disciple made? Well, you go out, you talk to a lost guy, and you teach him the gospel. You teach him about sin, and then you teach him about personal condemnation and responsibility before God, judgment to come, and how Jesus Christ paid that fine, and you teach him the gospel. Sometimes we call that preaching, because it's announcing authoritatively the gospel message, but it's teaching the gospel. So what do we do to make a disciple? A new disciple is made through the teaching of the gospel, evangelism. And then once the, once that that lost person becomes a disciple, a follower of Christ. He's saved, he's born again, he's repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do we Make a disciple in the sense of how do we mold that man, uh, that woman into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? And of course, that's through edification. We do that through teaching. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen that the Scripture was given so that we could be perfected and made perfect unto all good works. And so the 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 two commands, go ye therefore and teach all nations, are followed um, by two. I think they're they're called gerons in 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 grammar and syntax, the ing words, running, eating. Well, there's two ing words that follow these two commands, and they give us a description of how we do that. So when the Bible says, "'Go ye therefore, and teach all nations,' then it gives us the how-to. "'Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost,' teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so we have these two I-N-G words that follow uh, the commands that teach us, okay, how are we supposed to do this thing? How are we supposed to go and make these disciples and teaching? Well, how are we supposed to do that? So first comes water baptism. That forms part of the process. It's the first step of obedience, a step where the di- disciple identifies with the Lord, okay? Um, we're not going to talk about that a lot in this lesson, maybe later but then follows um, a process of teaching them. And that's what I want to focus on, because here is where we get very, very specific in the Great Commission. And here is where I believe we can see the anachronistic problem in reading the Church back into the Great Commission and trying to apply the Great Commission to the Church today. The Bible is very specific. The Lord Jesus Christ was very, very specific with his eleven disciples about what he wanted them to teach the new disciples. He says, teaching them to observe. So he wants to, to you got to teach them doctrine and then teach them to obey the doctrine. And he says, all things, okay, all is all encompassing. All things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all way, even unto the end of the world. Okay, so here is where we begin to see that great commission become very specific. Because like I said, the Lord Jesus Christ is very specific in what he commands the eleven to teach new disciples. If you say that the Great Commission is directly and doctrinally for the church today, if this is a passage for us to apply today, word for word, literally as it is written, directly doctrinally for us, then you have to obey this. You have to obey this. Jesus said he wants his disciples to teach the new disciples all things that he commanded the eleven. Where do you find the doctrine that Jesus Christ taught the eleven? From this context, between the resurrection and the ascension, where do you find what Jesus Christ taught his disciples? You find it in the Gospels, right? Yes. So the doctrine of the disciples, the doctrine, the teaching the disciples were supposed to transmit to the new disciples, is the teaching the disciples received from Jesus Christ in the Gospels. That's what he says. Teaching them to observe all things. That's all and everything that we got, all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And up to this point, Matthew 28, anything and everything Jesus ever commanded the eleven is going to be found in the Gospels, historically before the Great Commission. Okay, so that's established. What does the Bible say? The passage here says that Jesus commanded his eleven apostles to teach all nations to observe all things that he, Jesus Christ, commanded them. The eleven apostles. And so when we jump over to Acts chapter 2, this folks is exactly what we see happening. Acts 2 41 and 42. Acts 2.41 then they that gladly received his word were baptized. That's after Peter preached his, his Pentecost message. Okay? And the same day were added unto them about three thousand souls. Verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. Where do you find the, the, the apostles' doctrine? Well, okay, wait, wait. What apostles? The twelve. Where do you find the apostles' doctrine, the teaching that the apostles are teaching? We just saw it. They're teaching everything that Jesus Christ ever commanded them up to the Great Commission. They're teaching what Jesus Christ taught them from from the beginning of his public ministry until his ascension, his his resurrection and and his ascension. So yeah, they baptize their new converts. okay, we see that. and now we see too that they're teaching their new converts to continue steadfastly in the apostles doctrine. That's the that's the doctrine of the apostles, the doctrine given to the apostles the eleven or twelve with Matthews. And how many times have we seen churches today grabbing this verse and saying, well this is a this is our pattern for ministry. This is what the the disciples did in the primitive church. So this is what we want to do. Even in my my uh, my Scofield Bible, I've got a heading over this passage that says the first church. Who in this passage is starting churches? Who in this passage is planting local churches? Folks, there's still practicing temple worship but no we want to read back into the past what we know happens later in the future it's an anachronistic error we we talked about this this last time i'm only going to mention this quickly back in matthew chapter 6 let's read about something jesus taught his disciples let's let's read what jesus commanded his disciples he commanded, he taught conditional forgiveness. Matthew 6, 12. This is the prayer. He said, okay, the um, uh, where am I at? 6, 12. This is your, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And verse 12 says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Okay, how does that play out? Verse 14. Jesus Christ told his disciples, if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Conditional forgiveness. That's what the disciples are teaching. That's the apostles' doctrine. Do you teach that today? Oh, but we follow the apostles' doctrine. Well, then you're a heretic. You're teaching bad doctrine. Because that that contradicts what Paul says in Colossians 2.13. Paul says in Colossians 2.13, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So in the moment of our salvation, we have unconditional forgiveness of all trespasses, all sin, past, present, and future. The Apostles' Doctrine, Acts 2.42, Contains the teaching that if you do not forgive others, God will not forgive you. And I'm telling you, we do not teach that today. Today we teach that because God has forgiven us, we should forgive others as he forgave us. It's totally different. Look, go go back, and if you don't have your Bible, that, that's fine. Matthew twenty-eight, but just go back on your timeline in your head to the Great Commission. After the 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 earthly ministry of Christ, he's resurrected. He's gonna be going back to heaven in the ascension here very soon, and he gives this great commission to his um to his to his disciples. Well, the Great Commission, like in Matthew twenty-eight, folks, it looks backwards to the earthly ministry of Jesus to the Jews under the law in the Old Testament. I know, I just said that, didn't I? And I I probably lost a bunch of you. Well, if Jesus says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, where do we find the things that Jesus commanded them? We have to look back into the earthly ministry of Jesus. We have to look back into the Gospels. And when we look back into the Gospels, ah, here it comes. Are you ready? Are you ready? You're looking back into the Old Testament. You're looking back into the Old Testament. Now, I know some of you get this, okay? I know some of you get this. Maybe some of you don't. The New Testament did not come into effect until the death of Christ, and so up until the death of Christ, you are reading Old Testament. I don't care what that page between Malachi and Matthew says. It says New Testament. I get it. But technically, Jesus Christ told his disciples at the Last Supper, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many, okay? So that blood of the new covenant is what is the blood of the Testament. The testator died, and the New Testament started at the death of Christ. That's why Galatians 4.4 4 says, Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Look, remember, Jesus Christ was born under the law. And Jesus Christ lived his entire life under the law obeying the law Matthew 5:17 Matthew 5:17 Jesus says Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets I am come I am not come to destroy but to fulfill So remember that Jesus was born under the law remember that Jesus lived under the law fulfilling the law and once that law was fulfilled he died on the cross again fulfilling the requirements of the law for us in our place our substitute. Hebrews chapter 9 says Hebrews 9:15 to 17 Hebrews 9:15 to 17 and for this cause he Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new testament the new covenant that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, the Old Testament, they which were called uh, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. And so remember that Jesus Christ was born under the law. Remember that Jesus Christ lived under the law, fulfilling the law during the entire 33 and a half years of his life. Remember that the law of Moses was not fulfilled and his work was not complete until his death on the cross. And then at his death on the cross, Romans 10.4 comes into play, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And so when we look at this, and we go back and we take a look at what Jesus Christ said in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, he's telling them what he wants them to teach. Go and teach all nations. Okay, what do you want us to teach in the Great Commission? The Great Commission teaching is teaching them To observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So we have to look back into the Old Testament under the law in the Gospels to find the teaching that the Great Commission commands the disciples to teach. So if we say that the Great Commission is specifically and doctrinally for us today, we are saying that we look back to the Gospels, to the Old Testament, to the law for our teaching on how we follow Jesus. If we say the Great Commission is specifically and doctrinally for us today, then we are saying it is wrong to look forward to Paul for our teaching on how we should follow Jesus. Because this is a command, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, the eleven. Therefore, to teach anything else is wrong. we got to go back to the Old Testament we got to go back to the Gospels. We got to go back under the law, apparently, in order to obey the Great Commission directly. So how are we supposed to understand the Great Commission in its proper and doctrinal context and avoid anachronistic errors? You know, we could look at this and say, okay, I get it. We don't look back. We follow Paul. Paul says, hey, uh, be followers of me as I am of Christ. That's how we follow Christ. So there's something going on here. And so how are we supposed to understand the Great Commission in, in its proper doctrinal context and avoid these anachronistic errors? Avoid trying to push the church into this passage and, and shove Christians in here and say this is what we're supposed to do, because it was never that design. We're never to be put under the yoke of the law again. We're free from the law of Moses and Jesus Christ. Okay? So here's another principle. We're gonna we're gonna developed this here in uh, in the next episode we're getting ready to finish this one up and we're we're going to jump into the next episode uh from here but what we need to do is pay attention to the words okay a principle of bible study the words that god preserved are the key to the bible not just the word it's not just the message it's the words the words are important we need to pay attention to the words God promised in Psalm 12, 6 and 7, maybe it's 6 to 8, can't remember, um, that he said that he would preserve his words from this generation forever. And so there is a phrase in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, um, right at the end, in verse 20, that is our key. There are three words, three words, um, in the end of, no, there's one, no, one, two, Three, four, there's five words, five words. I think I got three in Spanish. No, three in Greek. Okay, never mind. Um, <laughs> We'll get there. Um, Look, there's five words. There's a, there's a phrase right at the end. This is the key. This is essential. This is fundamental. If you want to understand the Great Commission, if you want to understand the proper interpretation of the Commission in its context, this is the key. Unto the end of the world. Matthew 28, 20. Post resurrection, pre ascension, great commission. It will be fulfilled unto the end of the world. Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Oh, yeah. Now, 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 this is. I mean, I, I don't know if this is going to tickle your gizzard like it did mine, but I like that. This. this is cool. This is neat. This is where you see these pieces of the puzzle start fitting together perfectly. I mean, God wrote this book. This phrase, unto the end of the world, is used almost exclusively in the Scripture by Matthew. And Matthew is very specific in how he uses it throughout his entire Gospel. Okay, so we're talking about some a phrase that's used almost exclusively in Matthew and then in Matthew we're talking about it using about this phrase being used very specifically within this gospel. I mean I mean this is uh, this is like I mean this is good stuff. So you see this same phrase and I'm gonna give you the Greek okay and uh, and then I'm gonna explain myself okay so you don't get yourself all in a wad. Um, I'm gonna explain myself, but but I mean it's even cooler when you can see how it ties in in English and how it also ties in in Greek. So it that your Bible says the same thing in English and in Greek, okay? Because it says the same thing in Spanish too, but we're not we won't go there. So look, the phrase in Greek is suntileas to ionas." All right, Suntileas, the end to. Of the Ionas world, soon to lay us to Ionas. All right, that's the Greek. Um, English, the end of the world. Now, I know we're not going to. I mean, I, I, I know. Okay, whatever. Greek. Okay, I, I taught myself some Greek. Um, I read my Greek New Testament. I, I did some stuff because I was, I was working on some things that I wanted to. Whatever. You can do this with a Strong's Concordance. You can do this with E Sword. You can do this with whatever, okay? All you have to do is get out your Bible program, your Strong's Concordance, and you trace this phrase through Scripture. I'm saying trace this phrase in English and in Greek through Matthew. Um, And you can see the same thing in English that you see in Greek. What you see in Greek is what you see in English. You see God is in charge of the whole package, okay? Uh, I know people get all up in a wad about, about folks using Greek to correct the English. That's not a problem with the Greek, folks. The Greek is not the problem. The person correcting the English with the Greek is the problem. I'm telling you, I taught myself Greek so I could say that, so I could figure that out. Your English Bible says the same thing the Greek Bible says. The Greek Bible says the same thing your English Bible says. And if somebody wants to use the Greek to correct the English. It's not a problem with the Greek, so don't get all up in a wad about Greek. It's just another language. It's like Spanish. You know, there's some Spanish speakers that don't know English, so we don't go correct their Spanish Bible with the English, and we don't correct the English with the Spanish. What we do is we take the Bible God is using from the textus receptus, the good line, and we use it as a closed system. We don't correct one Bible with another. If we're using the King James, we're gonna use the King James. That's our closed system. If we're in if we're in Spanish, we're gonna use the reign of Valera. And we're not gonna correct it with another version of the reign of Valera. We're not gonna correct it with the English. We're not gonna correct it with the Greek. We're gonna use this as closed system. You can do the same thing with Greek, folks. If all you had, all you had, okay, quotes, all if all you had was the the the, the Masoretic text in Hebrew and the Texas Receptus in Greek. You could get just as much out of that if you knew Hebrew and Greek as you could any other Bible in any other language. The problem is not with Greek. The problem is with sinful, prideful man exerting his authority over Scripture. Yea, hath God said. We know who the father of that kind of crap is, okay? So look, Matthew recorded in writing what the Lord said in the Great Commission, or I'm sorry, uh, when the Lord said the Great Commission would be fulfilled, okay? Um, gave us a time frame, under the end of the world, okay? Because he says, look, go teach whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you under the way, even unto the end of the world. Even unto the end of the world. He said that in English, soon to last to Ionas, he said that in, in Greek. So, here it is. The Church, the body of Christ, will not even be on earth at the end of the world. Right? I mean, Christ is going to rapture us out at least seven years before the end of the world. And so the Church, the body of Christ, cannot fulfill the Great Commission as it is written in Matthew 28. Cannot. Because we're not going to be here at the end of the world. Lo, I am with you even unto the end of the world. We're not going to be on earth at the end of the world. And you say, well, wait a minute, where do you see that? We can see this by simply comparing Scripture with Scripture, another principle of Bible study, because we have a closed system in the Scripture. It is the inspired Word of God. We can compare Scripture with Scripture and see just how Matthew uses this phrase to refer to something very specific and very clearly defined. Matthew chapter 24, here's where we're going to end for the day. I want to leave you with a bit of a cliffhanger, and we're going to come back in in the next episode and finish it up. Now, the next episode might get a little bit longer. I know I went long on this one. We might go a little longer on the other one, but I want to do this in two so we can move on to some other fun stuff in uh, future episodes. episodes, okay? So I want to finish this up. We're going to get it done. Matthew 24, this is good stuff. I don't want to cut it short, okay? So in Matthew 24, we have what they call the Olivet Discourse, one of those uh, very important discourses of Jesus Christ talking about future things. Now, the disciples ask Jesus Christ a question. The question they ask him launches this, this discourse, okay? This sermon, this teaching on things to come. And... um. It says in 24, I'm going to read 1 to 3. Jesus went out, departed from the temple. His disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, his disciples, okay, we got the 12. Here we are, same thing. Jesus talking to his disciples. Jesus talking to his 12. See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So he kind of gives them this, whoa, what's going to go on here? Wow, everything's going to be destroyed in verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately. Here's the 12, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming? And of what? The end of the world. Now, if if you haven't got that song in your head from Chicken Little, um, you know, R.E.M., I think, the end of the world as we know it. Uh, but I feel fine uh, man it, it needs to be stuck in your head the end of the world the disciples asked Jesus a very specific question watch this watch this watch 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 what shall be the sign of thy coming? second coming the coming of Jesus Christ in glory to take the throne of David fulfill the Davidic covenant and set up the promised kingdom of Israel what we call the millennium some messianic Kingdom. What's going to be the sign of thy coming, second coming? And, same event, and of the end of the world. That is the same phrase in English that you see in Matthew 28. Yeah, I'm going to go back there and read it. Lo, I am with you always, even unto... The end of the world. Now, the Greek in Matthew 28 is soon to lay us to Ionas, end of the world. You know what the Greek is in Matthew 24 3? End of the world? It's the same phrase, soon to lay us to Ionas. Matthew, very specific, when he said in the Great Commission that it would be fulfilled even unto the end of the world, he uses that same phrase in Matthew 24 when these disciples ask a question, what's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? And in that context, Jesus Christ gives them the Great Commission in Matthew 24. Did you catch that, or were you looking at your watch because I went over the hour you thought this podcast was supposed to take? The same Great Commission that you see at the end of the Gospels and at the beginning of the book of Acts, was given previously in Matthew chapter 24. The Great Commission at the end of the Gospels and at the beginning of the book of Acts is a repetition of the commission that was given to the disciples in Matthew 24. That's what I want to look at in our next episode. Thanks for spending your time listening to my podcast, Theology 101. Simple is better, and it's just not that difficult to learn the Bible so we can do what it tells us. You can find the rest of my studies in English out on my website, theology101.net. And if you do Spanish, tengo más de 15 años de estudios bíblicos disponibles en mi sitio web, teologia101.net. If you'd like to contact me, There's a contact page on my website. You're also more than welcome to visit me any Sunday that you wish. My church information is also out on my website. Remember what Nicholas von Zinzendorf always said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Learn the Bible, do what it tells you, and come back for more Theology 101.